Hi, I'm Daniel Burkholder, the host of the Act React podcast. And today I'm excited to welcome you to my conversation with Asia Upchurch. Asia and I are friends and colleagues from back when we both lived in Washington, D.C. She's now up teaching at Harvard and I'm out here in Milwaukee. So it was really great to have an opportunity to sit down and kind of talk about all of these things about improvisation in hip hop and tap and even in education. So we'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, I'll just read a little bio about Asia so you can know her just a little bit more. Asia Upchurch, the dancing diplomat, is an artist and educator who creates, facilitates, and designs for radical change. She has shared her experience about artfully designing equitable and culturally relevant classrooms, the importance of dance and movement education, and embracing hip hop as a powerful liter literacy as a consultant and speaker, and most recently at Ted U. Khan. She is a lecturer and artist in residence at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where she is pioneering courses and initiatives on hip hop pedagogy and embodied learning whether on stage or in a classroom. As a U.S. State Department cultural envoy or professor, Asia is making moves and demonstrating how to be D-O-P-E, dismantling oppression and pushing education. As you can tell, she's, she is all over the place and doing so many amazing things out in the world, and we dig into some of those in the following conversations. So let's go ahead and jump in and enjoy. Hi, Aisha. Um, thank you so much for joining me today um, for another episode of Act React podcast. And really excited to have you as a guest. We've known each other for quite a while and we've had conversations over the years, but I'm glad um, and excited to kind of dig into to this conversation with you today. I'm excited to be here and I'm looking forward to wherever this conversation <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so I, this is kind of a variation of a question I ask everyone just to start off, um, just to start off is how does improvisation manifest itself in your current artistic, pedagogical, or even personal kind of practices? Oh, I love improvisation. Um, I think it has no choice but to manifest in my practice as an artist as an and as an educator which is really an identity that i, I don't doesn't have a fine a uh, hard line they they totally are cyclical with each other um and i think that's because of um, how i identify as a black african-american woman who grew up in north st louis in a family of call and response of chants of drum circles before i knew the language of improv or freestyle that kind of change and uh, cipher type of experience really was formative to how I see the world, period. And then particularly as, um, as, a, as an educator is how I, I try to bring that in. Um, I try to, um, you know, I know what I know. I know that I don't know some things. And, you know, if I can, if the classroom can become a space where we are freestyling, offering what we do know and building with each other. And so this kind of collaborative knowledge building improv that isn't based on fiction, but are things that folks maybe haven't fully fleshed out. I think that is a type of um, ability to improv in the, in the classroom space. 
Um, and then as a performer, I mean, uh, studying tap dance, um, jazz, um, hip hop and street dance, um, that the technique, improv is the technique. It's now that we have this, the, 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 the benefit of reflection and codifying and documenting things that now we can kind of be studied and kind of um, laid out. But these forms develop out of, I see what you're doing. I, I want to try that. I want to mimic that. And I think it's a really beautiful skill. And of course, there are scholars who write about um, improvisation as a kind of um, intelligence and competency. And I totally believe that. Um, and so I, I honestly just don't even know how to be in this world <laughs> without improv. And as a performer, lastly, I'll say quickly, um, in this kind of feels like a second act of like how me as a performer and not in some like final world tour kind of like, you know, wave the white flag, but in this really beautiful res restoration of like how I feel like I'm understanding my artistry, I even enjoy intentionally making pieces that are partially choreographed, partially improv, and to borrow from the late great Gregory Hines, that improvography. Um, I like to present works that still have this in-progress edge to them because there's something I can't learn about the piece until I put it into the space of the stage and it's communicating with the energy and the frequency that's there and the bodies and the humans that are there. And I'm like, again, I'm, I like, I need that call and response to go back into the lab studio and, and go what's next. So that's how improv sits in my work across the, throughout, throughout all of my practices. That's, that's wonderful. There's a couple threads there. And I think just because maybe it was the last thing you mentioned about this practice of creating works that are somewhat choreographed, some of it's choreographed um, and some of it's improvised, um, meaning, I, I assume, meaning that sometimes the steps and the spacing is set and sometimes it's created in the moment. Um, so could you talk about that process, like whether it's your own individual, like if you're doing a solo or also when you're working with a group of dancers, how do you manifest that kind of balance? Yeah, um, beautiful. Uh, and I and I will say transparently, I think I really struggled in my like first act <laughs> life of as a as a as a dance maker, as a performer, to appreciate the what's inherent, I think, in our processes as artists and more specifically as dance artists of iteration. Um, I I thought that when you create a piece, it has to be finished stop like it has to literally be finished in the studio it is exactly the thing that will go on the stage every time and when i would go and so setting work on other dancers that paradigm it actually makes sense especially when you're dealing with compressed time um and you're in these intensive situations you kind of you need to have at least some framework of how you want the piece to go to get it out on the bodies and let them work it out right and so that is still like a, a paradigm that I, I, I use when working with um, setting work on, on groups. And so it's like, there is a piece. It, it does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, a, it's got its denouement. Um, and yet as a soloist, it was always very hard for me to choreograph on myself and perform it. And I would like hate to do it actually, if I'm being honest. Um, there I remember starting many pieces and it was just frustrating being in the studio with myself because I, I, I don't know. 
now that I've had some time to reflect, I think what it is is because I really consider myself a storyteller um, who's kinesthetic and who's um, participatory. So some part of my piece is like, I want to hear that, like, I really want the audience to say something. Yeah. And I think because I'm, I've become more in tune with how I am inherently a social being and also a spiritual being. So a part of my process, spirit doesn't give me a neat, finite package to like the answers that I have. It is a constant uh, unwrapping of something and storytelling. Like there's a plot twist oftentimes in life. And I didn't know that I can't plan for the plot twist. So there's a pleasure that I get in like, creating a work where I know the work where it's coming from and that yes, it, it has a beginning, a middle and the end, but I don't want to make my process and making the work become that thing that I struggled with 10 years ago of like, do I have all of these phrases in the right order all the time? Because me in the studio and me when I'm in the space with people, something happens again, that call and response where I get to repeat this three more times or I get to pause and take a longer scan of the audience. If I'm doing, I combine spoken word with my pieces sometimes. I get to play with that because there's something right there. And so the work will change every night in those in those ways. But I also know that I, I want it to be open to do that. So it's not just like I ain't never been in no studio and like, will somebody want me to do something on the stage? Uh, I picked a song on the drive over. It's not. <laughs> but um, it's it's yeah. it's allowed me to feel like I have a process that respects like who Asia is with and for herself and then who Aisha is um is with groups and calls in i get to like employ a paradigm that helps us actually get to a process but i also then start inviting people to like bring your interpretation how can we put that into the piece yeah that was really such a great way of describing this process and it's a process that i uh it, i recognize it as you're talking about it's like i recognize it as like very similar to my current solo practice as well of you know going in the studio and this is this dance but um coming into an audience we'll see what this dance is tonight or today and with these people in this situation and um and i've also been incorporating asking the audience questions that feed into the piece and the whole the whole bit you know so it's like this it's a different kind of way of being in relationship to the audience and being in relationship to myself so yeah i totally appreciate that i think that actually goes nicely i was you know i was watching one of your videos of uh for rise and gather that you have on your website and you talked about resma menekin and his book my grandmother's hands yeah and um and from that conversation you i'm going to kind of um kind of uh, uh not quite quote you but um paraphrase you and you said what movements from our ancestors can we remember to anchor who we are or kind of what we do and I wonder, kind of going back to your story earlier, where you were talking about your growing up and the call and response family and stuff like that. So there's something like very personal about that question. And then I also wonder if there's like we can zoom out a little bit and think about how that question can be applied to hip hop traditions and tap traditions and all those and how that calling forth the ancestors in those forms, how that lands for you or how you might think about that. Absolutely. Um, it really ties into uh, 
again, you know, uh, I wish, um, you know, I'm, I'm 41 now and there's so many, I'm so appreciative of my journey, right? But in so many ways, like <laughs> over the last two years, I'm like, oh my gosh, if right now Aisha could have just sent like, if I could have envisioned my future self and asked my future self to send back a message to me, which is actually an exercise I do with people called preflecting. Anyway, don't worry about it. I could have gotten a preflected message that was like, whatever you need to do to feel you is always okay. And so um, I offer that because I think especially like traversing the academy when i first came into like teaching um hip-hop and street dance in the academy and like higher ed um not knowing that that's where i was gonna be but it actually really revealed that like this is the good a good sandbox for me actually even with all the tensions um i was like well when you're in college you know put my serious face on fist under chin you know i gotta i have to i should teach like the other professors teach and, you know, I'm, I, humor is a part of my life. I'm a joy ambassador. And so like I found that, but I found this tension with the way that I was structuring and presenting, particularly the teaching and the learning of hip hop dance, which does not, was not birthed by and really does not keep surviving and evolving on the same kind of paradigm and ideologies of the ivory towers. Like they got two different, <laughs> you know, close points on like, how do you exist? And I was also feeling like some part of me doesn't feel like I'm being me. I'm having to be in this performative role that I really didn't want to audition for to teach like this. And so I was, it took a while and I've been talking again with, uh, with some of my other colleagues who also teach these forms in academia around like resolving that. And so I think for me, part of it was like, one, I have to be Asia. So I know the big words and I know the colloquialisms and I've had to divorce myself from like feeling the need to code switch to be in that performative role of professor, instructor of note, of record um, and be like, I need my students to see that I eat, sleep and be like them. <laughs> so that real learning and connection, again, like you were mentioning, it's about the relationship I want to have with myself and the audience. I, that's why I think the classroom and the theater are just, are just two different versions yeah. of this. What relationship do I want to have with myself and my students in the classroom so that they can feel like they can have a, an authentic relationship with themselves, the content and their learning aspirations. And so that like freeness to be me. So I tell people about my family and where I came from because I need them to know you're going to call a response because that is the kind of the first way that I learned. It's in my pedagogy, not because I read articles about it, but because I need to be me and it also forms and so call and response um i also grew up kind of in a pentecostal kind of tradition and so verbal physicalized um affirming of something that happens I, I, i'm not here for the sunday matinee type of audience where it's like it's crowd i'm like you know even in zoomlandia use the chat light it up because that type of engagement, I think, is also another type of, um, and there's a scholar, uh, Dr. Patina Love has written about this in some of her work, around participation as an actual, or observation as a really transformative type of participation. So how we, I was invited, like, you know, we can problematize this at, at, on a later date, but like 
sitting in rooms with elders where the expectation was like, I'm not speaking, but I am there to listen and learn. And that was very important observational type of intelligence. And so I think when people are allowed to affirm those natural ways, you know, to remember, to like literally remind how participation, how the ways that they know how to orient themselves in the world that comes from these beautiful, beautiful traditions in their families, from their ancestors, from their, from their, you know, given families and built families is totally fine. So also in the audience, on in theater, there's a moment, we'll get it. Like, I think it's also about educating the audiences around, you are part of this experience. You just don't have to be a passive butt in the seat. Like your energy, your presence here is part of this experience. So I also want you to feel like you can clap, you can rock, you can testify, you can feel uncomfortable, you can feel pulled in. But that only comes when I'm being like, free and giving myself permission to be a chef and all of those things that I know that informed how I feel like me have to be in, have to be at play. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's really great. It just makes me think about like being in the classroom and bringing your whole self in the ways that you describe it and ask the students to bring them whole, their whole selves to the practice as well and how their lineages and ancestors are part of what's happening in the room that how could it not be improvisational because the because the answers don't rest with you the the answers rest with each individual and so there's always going to be variations or new information that's coming into the mix because of that um so that seems really really inspiring so so in your classroom like say, like I think, I mean, I, I know like sometimes you're like in a classroom and sometimes you're in a studio teaching and those things probably are, are very, not very um, separate. There's a lot of blurring between what those two spaces are. But when you're teaching actual improvisation, like you're teaching your students how to take this knowledge and improvise on it, do you have a way like a pedagogical framework to lead them into that? Like how, how to teach, how to improvise or how to, yeah, teaching yeah. improvise, yeah. Um, I wanna shout out uh, Heidi Schultz. Yeah. Um, who I took rhythm tap from, this is like what I'm most proud of my undergraduate experience at American University. I figured out how to take it three times for credit, not for the dance major or minor. Hello, okay, that deserves some recognition. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna mention her because it was in that, my first class with her, I'd had some tap in a previous life once and realized there was more to the world. And she ended class in a freestyle circle and I was like, I don't have tap shoes, I'm having fun, but now I'm feeling like, what in the world? But the way that she was scaffold, like it's not about flash, it's about taking what you have and can you fit in the meter of the music or, or the beat that we're holding. And so in a lot of ways, um, again, as I mentioned before, when I had to revisit my teaching practice to make it feel authentic um, to the form, uh, and then also I can teach it in a way where I'm authentically representing what I know and my experience of it, because I'm not, I, I really have some, I'm not, I know, the only thing I'm expert at being is being Asia of church. Um, and even then I would phone a friend sometimes for help, but that type of scaffolding and like 
uh, particularly in academia, because one of the paradigms of academia, the schooling from K-12 plus, tells you that there is a finite right or wrong, you will be judged A through F, and there is no beauty to be rewarded in getting there and learning yourself what you're getting. And so I tried to, when I was like, we got a session, we got a freestyle in a hip hop class. It's like, we got to start off sessioning and then that'll get into warm up. The very first time I tried that, the students were so resistant and it wasn't necessarily too freestyling, but that was like, college doesn't let you improv. And so they were like, can you just get into the taught warm up and the taught choreography? And I was like, y'all are, oh, <laughs> I did not give them anything to scaffold. I just, you know, so I like went back and remembered from that practice from Heidi and over time what I've done, because I think it is important for students, particularly learning, coming to for the first time or continuing to hone their skills or in, in hip hop forms, is that um, you need to understand the music. <clears throat> and so you need to understand timing and meter and musicality, right? And so also, uh, particularly if, when we're doing exploration of um, breaking and um, <clears throat> funk styles, I try to introduce as an exercise kind of the standards, like those songs that like breakers just go nuts for and poppers and lockers go nuts for. I need them to start training their ears. So I've done an exercise where, for instance, I have my class just listen to uh, Jimmy Castor Bunches. It's just begun. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need you to be able to connect to the why the kind of rocking and shipping, shifting of weight and syncopation happens. I could teach you a combo, but you'll miss it. And so the students, that was their assignment was to keep listening to it. And then I do an assignment where they had to report themselves every week, sessioning, just no choreography, just trying to reframe repetition as a beautiful opportunity versus a punishment, which is what also school does. It penalizes you for having to do something again, where I'm going, getting to stick with something until you realize why you have it, or even be able to go, I realize what I don't have is actually the gift. And so that's one of the things over time I figured out how to scaffold is like, you have to, you have to record yourself and then you've got to watch it and see what you notice. And then in class, the play for five to 20 minutes of like, I'm not leading any teaching, we're training our ear, the musicality and the shifting of the body in that form is happening. And so sca scaffolding the sessioning and freestyling and musicality is something that um, I was excited to develop over time. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the things when you realize you know, hip hop wasn't born out of the, out of, out of um, academia. And of course, many places have opened up their doors to have it. And still there's like, I can't teach hip hop according to another form's rubric. If we have, if it has like such total different rhyme and reason, like you, so to me, being able to improv is as important of a skill to hone and develop, even if you never love it, just as it is. Like I learned, I was a pianist in another life doing those tannin scales you don't go to a recital or a show and play the scales but you you, have, you need to repeat those that conditioning so that's what i've learned um from the studio teaching practice that's great um so kind of like flip that a little bit and thinking about improvisation as a pedag pedagogical tool 
like in the classroom, how you are using improvisation, whether it's teaching dance or whether it's teaching anything like other subjects or even workshops or, or you know, what have you. Um, how do you, can you frame improvisation in that context? Yeah, um, so I, I think, um, fun fact, I didn't go to kindergarten. I spent, I think, like maybe a week and a half in kindergarten, and I was promoted. I, I think somebody thought to first grade. I didn't get it. It felt very disruptive. And I felt like I just came from preschool where we got to take naps and have snacks and play. And there was a little bit of that in kindergarten. But now in first grade, it's gotten real serious. And I have a resource teacher in the back because I don't understand numbers. And I don't know whose idea this was. So I think a part of me is um, somebody told me I teach like a kindergarten teacher. And they said, that is the highest compliment that you should get. And I was like, great, because I never got to go. So all of that to say, like, play, 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 is how I think that improv skill I try to seed in like kind of my more like lecture or hybrid lecture dem classes. And one of the things I always go is no wrong answer. No wrong answer, go. And and I and I play and I also play around with like the physical organization of the space to try to remove me from center a bit more. So and I just have to say, all right, please don't perform your intelligence to me. I'm both impressed and not and I'm not and also I'm not worthy for all of that to come to me. And so like it's, it's, it's too much. I can't take that all in. But you want your classmates should really start learning how to see each other physically, visibly but also build and connect. And so I do a lot of activities where also just to not be sitting, we'll stand up in a circle. Um, and when you have an idea or a response to whatever the prompt, just go into the center and share it. And when somebody feels like they have a connection, you go and you take their place. So I bring in ciphering. Uh, you don't know what that previous person is gonna say. So the idea of improv also as a, as a, as a really high intelligence is you have to be listening, especially when you're in group, right? You've got to be listening with all of your whole sensorial body and mind and spirit to understand where to connect to, to sense that you're with people and somebody's going to tag you as well. Um, but if you are so fixed only on like your pre, your script of your points, you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. And I think that is a skill that is very necessary in life, like that comes up in social situations like when you can't take the cue that like this wasn't about building your point, you missed connecting with everybody. Even in job interviews, like, are you understanding how to even like disrupt the paradigm, the power paradigm there and go, I'm going to step into the cipher and put something on the table. Can y'all pick up what I'm throwing down? And so that's kind of the one of the ways I bring it in in um, kind of lecture based classes is also like, first of all, play. What if there wasn't a wrong answer? people would be more willing to go, well, I kind of heard this one thing, I don't know, and somebody's like, oh, 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 yes, it's this, um, and that is, I feel like, a part of improv is, I'm in this experiment, and so you have to be able to build a container for a space for folks to experiment with fully developed knowledge pieces that they have, and then those little nuggets that are still, like, baking, um, and so that, for me, is, like, how the dance practice and the form of particularly in street dance informs like my pedagogical structure and framing for lecture classes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if we can release this idea of being right, it's just, it just makes everything, even like as a teacher, like 
not just write, but here is this certain information that I have to impart. Like if you let that go a little bit, like none of the information you have is so precious. Like, yes, you're, you're, you ha you know some stuff, but you know lots of things and the students know lots of things and let's see where it meets. And, you know, and sometimes obviously you're leading something very like clear and then something happens, but it's like trying to just hit all those points just gets so difficult as a, as a teacher or as a student. It does. And I will say really quickly to that, I think, um, again, talk about the joy of repetition. I think even for teachers and instructors is getting to teach a class more than once. Holy, thank you, powers that be. Mm -hmm. I'm in the fourth year of these new courses I've piloted on embodied learning and hip hop pedagogy. And there, even with all the changes over the past few years where each year feels like it doesn't prepare me for the next, with the constant and my trusting of my ability to be me with the constant in the space, I feel like I'm in a flow. And also it's become much more apparent to me when to let go of the like agenda that I've planned because the the energy in the room right there is like, we, we need to stay on this. And so I feel like I have figured out that metaphorical dance better. Um, and it's because I, I also am like, why would I, I'm, and I'm very frank with students, we're not gonna cover everything. And I tell y'all, the syllabus is a starting draft. That thing is gonna say draft on it until the last day in class because if I can stay responsive to what this group means, not the fictitious of people that have designed the syllabus for, which is also how I think improv is a really beautiful tool for us as learning designers. If I can stay really tuned into the actual class and not that fictitious one, I'm gonna notice that like, oh, what I thought needed to happen in week three really should be something else because these particular people are saying this is what they need in week three. And if I cannot let go of my scripts, if I can't be a responsive freestyler, if I can't now let them be the call and me be the response, then I am doing the wrong thing in life. And then particularly at the level where I'm teaching like grad school, I don't wanna be wasting anybody's money and investment in themselves. Yeah. So. I also just want to say how that informs learning design, with like letting go the whole syllabus and who made these rules? Yeah. <laughs> People who like to check boxes. Well, I, <laughs> I followed directions on my paper all through second grade. I remember yeah. it very well. So there you go. I was just speaking to a, a grad student who's working on her thesis the other day and she, I think, had a very clear vision of the piece that she was going to be making. And like she had the sections all laid out and the music all laid out and what she imagined. And now her cast has changed. Some people dropped out who had some specific skills and, and things like that. And I think she was feeling a little like out at sea a little bit. And, and I just kind of going what you said, I was like, you had an image of the dance you were going to make, and now you just have to make the dance that you're making. You know, like mm -hmm. this, this is the dance you're making now, so this is the dance you're making. And that was maybe a, an anchor point or a destination or something to get you going, but now you're you're in the woods. Now you just gotta like hunt around and find, find the dance you're making. Um, I'm not sure she was always thrilled with that, suggestion yeah, but <laughs> but it's like that's the way it is um i want to kind of zoom out 
back, maybe kind of thinking about hip hop a little bit more kind of in a broader sense. And I was, um, where did I put it? Oh, I, I pulled out this. Oh my word. And, um, and found the article that is in here that you wrote and, um, and realized there's also an article in here that I wrote. Yes. And, and I was loving this because it's such, I was kind of, you know, I was going through it and I, it's such like an artifact of a very specific time and a very specific place, right? In DC, um, when Rob was doing this and put this out and it's like, there's so like, I know, you know, it's all of us who were in DC at that time or many of us. And so it was really loved, lovely to look at. But one of the things that you said in it, and again, I have this kind of paraphrase quote here, is that um, that hip hop struggles for legitimacy um, because one of the main aspects of it is improvisational, right? To 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 get, make it legitimate. There's many other reasons that hip hop has struggled to be legitimate in the eyes of high art and all that kind of stuff. And so I think there's there's something interesting in that. And then at the same time, as you've mentioned, you are now, you know, you teach um, and bring in hip hop in like the Harvard Graduate School of Education. That's pretty much like as legitimate as one can get. And so there's like this, this tension between between these two things. And I know that you wrote that it was a long time ago and stuff like that, but still I'm, I'm sure most of it is probably still true. So I'm just wondering about these two parts of yeah. hip hop and all of oh that. My goodness. I, you, it's like you pulled out an eight track where I'm like <laughs> so excited to see it and be like, also what are we gonna do with that now in the Jetsons universe? Um, so that time that it's, oh my gosh, I don't know if I had yet really put my pinky or my big toe into teaching in higher ed <clears throat> at that point just yet when I wrote that, goodness gracious, if I do math, I might scare yeah. myself about when it was written. I don't even know if your child was born yet. Um, <laughs> um, so at that time, I had not learned yet how to interrogate the whole notion of academia being right <clears throat> and it being some uh, pinnacle of legitimacy and validation. I spoke to that struggle for that hip hop is not illegitimate, but the, in the eyes of, like you were saying, yeah. the art world and the academy, what the markers of like what makes a form a real form or worth teaching and putting on a syllabus here, I still do think that we are. Um, in the midst of that in higher ed particularly, but there has been a shift. And um, again, I think um, because hip hop, why, why it appeals to people, and I feel like I've written a few times now about this, is because, um, because of hip hop's genesis, it has in its essence to reject constraint to reject marginalization, to reject oppression because the very bodies of the black and brown youth who were creating this have been abandoned. Their families, there's a whole economic, social, like kind of di uh, part of the story of like abandonment by the powers that be. So in its essence is a kind of middle finger to the norm because you don't care about us anyway. And we don't need to create 
by your standards. Now, the industry, the algorithm that has a thing called a recording industry and then the hip hop industry, I would argue is, is not the same as hip hop culture. They do get braided together, but it is worth distinguishing between them when you think about um, what is hip hop dance or what hip hop music and its, its elements, its paradigms, its essence will in some ways never get, and it actually doesn't need that quote unquote legitimacy because hip hop is gonna do what it does. And that is why it is so appealing to people because so many of us, um, what was the quote was it, uh, Thoreau lived lives of the massive men live lives of quiet desperation. And so hip hop as a gift, as my, as my colleague, um, Hewlett Arnold says, it's kind of a gift to everyone that is born from particular peoples. And in that gifting is this permission to go, what if I didn't leave this life of desperation of following the norm um, and have got to live loud and loud not being bad, not loud not being wrong, loud not being less than, but got to be loud, got to be bigger, got to be kind of an agitator uh, of the things that really aren't right. And so I think because of that, there's no way for hip hop and its true culture, and its true expression, to ever get the academy stamp. Um, and it doesn't need it. Now, I teach a hip hop ed course. There are other hip hop ed courses, and I think as I as I am in beautiful circles with colleagues, what we're doing is we're not in there teaching the class because we want the academy to like bless us and 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 give us permission, but it's to go. Because of the way time works, more people now have had real contact with or identify from hip hop culture that we can't ignore that lens, that way of navigating that paradigm of being from being in the, as, 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 as real. And so I think now when Aisha goes to write about that and thinks about that like 20 something year old self, yeah. I've had this world of experience. Um, I've had a world of like being able to interrogate and reflect on my own practice as artists, as educators, someone who identifies with hip hop and can go. Um, <clears throat> the reason I teach the class now at Harvard is not because um, hip hop needs Harvard. It's because Harvard had better recognize that hip hop is not gonna go anywhere. And so many of our students have practices and wanna be able to bring that and not shut that part of themselves off to their academic pursuits and their practices. So. Um, the tension to figure that out in a rubric and all of that is like, I think the journey of being an educator, but it's not about pigeonholing the essence and the heart of hip hop into a peg that is just never going to fit in. Yeah, that was, that was really beautifully said. Thank you. Um, and it kind of leads to, I think this last thing, cause I don't want to take up too much of your time though. I could like talk to you forever, just keep asking you questions. Um, and this is actually, I'm going to quote you again and, and have you respond. Cause I was like going through all your stuff and just so much great stuff. And this is from, and this is like, I'm reflecting your life back at you a little bit here right now. <laughs> this is from the TEDx Yukon talk. And you finished, it was right towards the end, you said, yes, dance is about joy, about the release, but it is also about deep connection, communication, interpretation, and liberation. Yeah, I think, um, again, if, my, if I could have pre-flected, uh, I have so much respect 
particularly if I'm talking about in the schooling space, I actually have a lot of respect for the students who are always giving feedback that, yo, get me out of this desk or I need more than this way of learning. It's not, it's not my full self. And a lot of me, as I reflect, I shut that off inside of the classes that weren't the dance class or wasn't PE or wasn't recess, which I, recess was always my favorite subject. Um, and now in this space where I'm like, be Asia, because that's the best way to be. Like I'm sitting on a ball now, bouncing and rolling and rocking. And I never ask people if that's okay. I'm really not concerned with it. Um, and so I've come into this space of like really kind of unfolding, like what is going on in movement? And people are like, oh, it's so expressive. And yes, it is. But I don't want us to think about it as it's for or it's only to be positioned as something for the creative outlet experience. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, dance is, period. That's my whole thesis. Art is, period. And what's what it what that what those full statements mean that they are all the things at all times. Like I don't think we should pigeonhole and like kids need art so they can be expressive. Because it also throws everything else that is expressive that is not quote unquote arts under the bus. And I, and I think we need to be careful of that in the arts and in the dance community, how sometimes we are hamstringing ourselves. And so when I say it's it's all those things and it's liberation, because it is a very native tongue for many of us who don't share the same spoken um idioms you know like i can connect with people bodily kinesthetically on different places of the planet where we can't i can't ask them to pass the sugar with words and so when we are in again learning design spaces to x out movement as an essential part of the human experience is very dangerous and i think schooling this enterprise of schooling as it has been set forth traditionally, I should say, for so many decades and centuries even, has done a very amazing job at um, promoting, instigating, and reifying disembodiment, disconnecting from the ways of affirming who we are through movement, from the fidget to the pot of beret to the slide to the cat clapping and rocking, to then going, therefore, teaching of dance in schools does not have to become this unnecessarily sexualized and kind of gender dichotomized experience for for few in these only few forms if in the rest of our lives movement and dance is so um i think you know again in my classes i always am trying to go even in the space where i teach i'm not of academia and my dna is different i understand that that is a sandbox that i am called to and I can say that they are my client right now, right? Is that I think that my role is to help people reconnect, literally remember themselves. And so literally I tell students, if you need to stand, take your shoes off, crisscross, whatever you need, please, if this space is anything, all the readings, whatever, but if you can re remember that you need to be in your body in a way that brings you peace, safety, and liberation, please do so. And it feels silly to have to do that because again, when we are three and five, run, place it, and then we school it out of our whole, and the thing around schooling is it's so powerful that it lasts, it permeates beyond those brick and mortar spaces into your whole way of engaging with the world where now we have meetings and we give people the stank eye when they're shifting in their chair when they're eating while we're having a meeting during the, the time that our bodies are telling us it's time for food. 
And it's like, you would never do that to a three-year-old because you know you're going to have a world war on your hands. So again, I'm here to bring back kindergarten because dance is, because movement is, because art is, because improv is a part of us being human. It's essential to us being, actively always being human. So great. So with that, just thank you so much, Aisha, for, for joining me today. And as always, it's such a pleasure to, to spend a little time with you. Same, same. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Have a good rest <laughs> of your day. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Aisha as much as I did. Please check out the show notes for information on how to find her out in the world, as well as some information about me if you're so interested. And please join me for my next conversation with Maria Gillespie, who is a colleague of mine here at Univers University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She is the chair of the dance department and also the director of Hyperlocal, an ongoing series of improvisational performances in and around Milwaukee that um, brings together a wide array of dancers and musicians to spontaneously create performances. So we'll be digging into all that then. Until then, live spontaneously. Take care.